0: Welcome into the StoryCraft Cafe. Today we're talking about writing rules, and we've all heard them, whether it's never use adverbs or avoid passive voice or any number of other things that you've heard from writers who say these things you must avoid if you're going to have a successful writing career. Well, are those rules always true? Well today. We're going to talk all about it with our panel of writers. Uh, you know, there are some rules that that you absolutely need to uh, abide by, but why and what do those do to benefit our writing? We're going to talk all about it today. Join us over at storycraft.cafe for, uh, to stay abreast of all of our upcoming events and to plug into a writing community where you can be the best that you can possibly be. Thanks to Dabble, as always, for making this show and the Storycraft Cafe possible. Now on to our show. And good morning. Here we are, live in the Storycraft Cafe or the Storycraft Bistro, as uh, Steve slash Jamie finishes his delicious carnivore breakfast and makes us all hungry. Uh, today coffee off of this keyboard. <laughs> right, we we had a we had a whole discussion about uh, where Josh got his coffee from and how the rest of the country distributes uh, its food between Hardee's and Carl's Jr. That matters to nobody but us. But we just it like, actually, like to,
1: I just want to point out that uh, coffee is a great desk cleaning. uh <laughs> thing because my desk was covered with like just dust and stuff because i'm horrible at clean and then you spill coffee on you got to wipe it all up it it's like a the, the one and only cleaning solvent that you can use i really i just want to point
2: out i'm sorry hank i know we're no. getting tangents again i just want to point out that that josh is a dragon award nominee <laughs> and his only way of describing that was coffee is a great Desk cleaning thing.
1: Desk cleaning thing. Look, I didn't have time to open up The thethotharth.com.
0: Well, this is proof that that Josh uh, is a great editor um, of his writing. And (laughs) Mm, see, you know,
1: hey, just eat your food. (laughs) Take Jamie out of this. Like, just click his camera off. Leave him out of this discussion.
0: Mm, hmm.
1: It's. I had a yeah, yuppie. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, hi, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the show.
0: <laughs> As we continue our discussion of writing slash rewriting uh, today, I, I thought a great uh, topic to discuss would be writing advice, uh, writing rules that that people swear by, and whether those things are actually True in uh, in real life slash production. And, you know, one of the one of the uh, the most common illustrations of that would be Stephen King's book on writing. He has some very uh, definitive rules that he says, always do this, never do this. And then you see other writers like, for instance, one of his rules that gets bandied about a lot is never use adverbs. And then J.K. Rowling and Neil Gaiman have never met an adverb that they didn't love. <laughs> it's true. Um, Robert Jordan. Robert Jordan. I mean, we could we could you know name you know as many authors as as you can imagine. Um, so that rule that Stephen King came up with is is obviously not true for everyone all the time because there are people, arguably. At least as popular, if not maybe more so than Stephen King, who say otherwise. So, um,
3: well, something
1: about that rule really quickly is like, yeah, you have to look at the genre and the age that the reader is. Like, you mentioned J.K. Rowling, and you're right, she uses adverbs all the time, right? uh, And she uses them in dialogue a lot too. But the audience that she's writing for might not necessarily take the context of what she's trying to say had she not used adverbs because they're younger readers. And so you can, as an adult reader, you want to say something like he said excitedly, but you figure out a way to present that in context without using those adverbs. But in the younger reader category, you might not want to do that you just want to put it in front of them so they understand 100% that okay this person is excited or they're nervous or whatever so sometimes that that rule really kind of is dictated by the reader that you're trying to write to and the age of that reader
0: am I allowed to you know, I'm glad you control? said that because I, I've never you're considered safe, that no. honestly that, that that's a great take that I've never really thought about
2: Am I, yeah. allowed, am I allowed to be a little controversial this morning? Absolutely. Uh, when are I, I told you you not controversial? I plan to be
0: controversial this morning. So go ahead. Here's a here's a little inside baseball just for for <laughs> listeners. But I I like to throw an article to the guys the day before sometimes when I'm when I'm thinking about it and expecting hot takes the next day, hoping that the article I send them will strike a nerve or you know have someone frothing. Over when they come in. So anyway, go ahead, Steve.
2: Let's talk Stephen King for one second. Let's talk about a guy who, in his own book, tells us how many times Carrie was rejected, only to be picked up by a company for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the early nineteen seventies dollars, right? Late late seventies, late late seventies,
0: four billion dollars in today's dollars.
2: (laughs) As a publisher, that tells me something. But I'm gonna I'm gonna leave out all that stuff, right? Stephen yeah. King fell into a career that was based on a on a book that became a movie that then opened up the door for him to write whatever he wanted for the rest of his life.
3: I thought you were about to say fell in front of a van, but go ahead. He did not.
2: He did fall in front of a van as well. Um, I've yeah. read Stephen that King's later. books. I enjoy Stephen King's books, but I'm just gonna say that somebody who stumbles into a career at a time when um, publishing was in the state that it was in, uh, should not necessarily be giving writing advice. If he were to give writing advice, number one on that list would be don't interject your politics into every freaking book that you write to a point where it makes everyone that read it want to throw up even if we agree with them.
3: And also don't do that much cocaine anymore.
2: Right, But but Stephen King writing on writing, I read that and I went, not all of this applies to every single person writing every kind of book that there is. He right. wrote it with such authority that it was sickening. Such authority. <laughs> it's sickening. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if Stephen King ever listens to this, I'm sorry, man. That book needs to, you need a rewrite because all of us are going, this doesn't apply anymore. And adverbs are fine if you're a writer that can get away with writing adverbs. Money sells, man, or money money um talks. And if people well, are selling books, if you look talks, at the cover of on
0: writing and you see that giant pet computer behind him on the you know the four megahertz
1: mm-hmm. you know, computer on his desk. Five and a quarter floppy
0: discs that hold yeah, like that, two words. That, that tells you the uh, the era that that book was and written. and then,
2: like, in. don't steal X-Men, call it the Institute, and make believe that you did something extraordinary. Uh, i'm I'm just I take issue with people quoting on writing all the time as if he is some authority on writing when, quite frankly, the books are are they're great stories written elementary style.
1: Well, yeah. and you you have to take the works for what it is. And, and you know, you take Stephen King, for example, since we're talking about him and he does in a lot of his books, really good character work. Um, but his nine out of 10 of his endings suck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you can read the book and enjoy the characters. But if you're looking for a fulfilling ending, that might not be the book you're looking for. Um, but you can take bits and pieces out of his work and go this is really good I'm gonna use that but like like Steve said just to take his book on writing as like a blueprint for what you should do or what should be done 100% of the time like one of the things they say about writing is if you want to be a good writer you have to have time to read because if you don't read you're not going to grow your f- fundamental toolbox as a writer and read a lot of different types of books um, like I the one genre, I don't really read his romance. That doesn't really intrigue me at all. But if you look at like, let's just say Nick Sparks, Nick Sparks writes phenomenal books that have powerful endings that have really good characters. Um, And you can take Mark Greeny who writes fantastic action sequences and has like pretty fulfilling endings. And then you can take bits and pieces of those books and Put them into your toolbox and use those deals. But all of those books are written with different rules. Um, yeah. And so you can kind of bend those rules um, different ways to apply to your own writing. There's a I have another sure.
0: Stephen King hot take. Uh, I have read so many Stephen King books up to about 55% and then just bail. Mm hmm.
1: The, the, well it's like eleven twenty eight six or whatever it is the one where the, the the I mean that book is so long and there's so yeah. many things that happen in that book like eventually you just get to the point where you're tired of reading it because you want you want the main plot to fulfill something and it's not because they're they're dancing around everything and takes so long to get and there's not really any reason for it
3: well if i can make, yeah. if I can offer an opinion about authors like uh, Stephen King, to some extent Michael Crichton, um, maybe even, not to uh, encourage the dead, but uh, Tom Clancy, They they make it big with a book that really hits, which may be the quality of the book, it may be timing, it may be the needs of the publisher, but for some reason that book hits, and people start to read read them out of habit. People who want to read a thriller, they go, oh, that's Clancy. That's a thriller. Everybody likes Clancy. I'm going to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And at, at that point, you understand that the, the ca- casual reader doesn't care about all these rules. They just want a good story. And sometimes they're willing to flip through a few pages that they're not interested in to get to the good story. If it's somebody like Tom Clancy or Stephen King or Michael Brighton. So I I feel like those people giving um, advice on how to write, like Hank said, it's it's kind of misplaced because they don't know why their writing was successful. They don't know that it was because they didn't use adverbs or because they did this or that. There's a whole – it's the same thing with pe- with indie writers, you know. They want to s- – I see people teaching classes like this is how you're successful because it worked for me. Well, no, it worked for you in this circumstance, in this time, you know, in- because of your genre, your- all these other things. But that was a huge mesh of things, and you can't guarantee it's going to work for anybody else. And the same is cru- true for uh, the advice Stephen King gives in on writing. There has been – literally hundreds and hundreds of successful writers who have broken the rules that Stephen King set down and been successful. Well, and, and to talk, to
1: talk about like rules, like you said, the reader doesn't necessarily care about the rules of writing. Like that's that. And, and that goes well beyond just the rules of writing. The reader doesn't really care about, structure and all that. They just want a good story. And it's the writer's job to understand that stuff and present it so the reader can understand it. But like, when you talk about rules, sometimes those rules are based around the time that they were created. Um, you know, on writing was what, 30 years ago or something, but then look at like the indie revolution, you know, silo is getting ready to come out this month based on the, the short stories by Hugh Howey and Hugh Howey Nailed the indie market right at the beginning with wool and the the you know the the short novella type five part books and then put it in an omnibus. But he did that in a time where that specific thing was big, and he nailed it and Uh, if he had written the same book now, I highly doubt that it would have the same impact that it did back then. It's kind of like Michael. Well, it's kind of like Michael Bunker in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania took off because he did a couple things with Hugh Howie. Everybody liked Hugh Howie. Bunker was doing the same thing with Philadelphia, writing the small stories. I even tried to do that, but I was unsuccessful in doing it. But you have to you have to look at Not only the rules of writing that make it popular, but what they're doing at that specific time. Right now, everybody's doing a book a month. Um, Ten years ago, that was not a thing you know, and who's to say that that's going to be a thing next year or in five years or whatever else. Right. And that's not technically but rules.
3: Maybe a book a week.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. No, when, when I started, uh, I published my first book 10 years ago and the, uh, the prevailing wisdom at the time was publish quickly. Didn't matter. Don't edit, you know, get, get as much out there as you can. And you know um hijack the 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 kindle uh algorithms. algorithms algorithms you know and 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 you know and and i published some stuff early on that i was you know not proud of and mm. that that i you know wish that i hadn't and i pulled that stuff down and and i published stuff with my wife under a pen name and you know have uh-huh. Have got a lot of stuff going, but I haven't published a whole lot under my name because I'm like skittish of you know mistakes made early on, and For sure. you know which which brings me to uh, with one of the first things that I I kind of wrote out in, in notes: done is better than perfect. Um, you know what one thing. there's so much bad advice out there, but you can become so obsessed with taking everyone's advice that you just never finish anything because, you know, it's just not perfect. And there comes a point where, you know, just being done and getting out is, is better than being perfect. Um, So what do you guys think about that? That adage that done is better
3: than perfect. I definitely agree with that. Uh, I, I feel like, You could, you can, I, there's somebody once said that uh, no manuscripts ever done or never is never finished. You just give up on it. And uh, (laughs) I feel like how much time you have to spend on it depends on how much experience you have. But at some point you have to just say, I can't spend my whole life making this book. Perfect. Nobody's ever going to read it. (laughs) There's kind of a,
2: an 80 20 type of rule that, that uh, you know, when you get to a point uh, you have to weigh the pros and cons and in, in writing today, you know, you have your, your breakouts once or twice a year, your major sellers, the ones that explode where at that point the question becomes again, timing versus, is it that really that good a book? And of course all of us have read several of the big bestsellers and we go, I don't know why this did what it did because it's, it's certainly appealing, but at the same time, like this isn't the best written book ever. And I don't know why it's doing what it's doing. And if you spend three years writing a book that performs like the majority of eBooks, you will have wasted three years of your life. Mm -hmm. I say that with love, but I say that truthfully, even the best selling books that we have are books that have been written in one to four months, you know, in some individual cases, maybe it took them a year. Right. But like then the sequels were written a hell of a lot quicker than that because they realized the speed at which things need to be done. But Um, in this particular market that we live in, you cannot afford, if you're writing for money, that's an important thing too, that I think we've talked about before. We need to define our our purposes and what success looks like to us. And if putting out the best book you could have ever written is your purpose, then take your time, who cares? Yeah. If, If having a career is the goal, then you can't waste that much time on a book because it might not do anything and you need to be ready to move on to your next book.
1: Well, and when it comes to rules too, like it it takes a long time to understand the difference in breaking a rule correctly and then just writing without regard to the rules. Like for instance, like contractions or uh, adverbs. Contractions are a big thing because in some genres, contractions are not a thing. Like like in in epic fantasy or fantasy in general, you can write without contractions. And that's the way those books are written. And a lot of people in those books speak without contractions. And it sounds very formal because that's the type of language that they were using or that we feel like that they're using in that setting. Right. And so there are fantasy books that have contractions like Brandon Sanderson, his fantasy is filled with contractions. Right. Um, So it, it, you could spend, like you said, you could spend all these time, all this time trying to figure out if you're breaking a rule or not, or figuring out what the rules are in general, and not writing. It's the same thing with like reading a whole bunch bunch of books on writing, right? Like if you're reading technique books or story books or plot books or whatever, I have tons of them, and I've read most of them. And uh, what I think is detrimental to writing now is that a lot of people come into this space and just say, I know I I have a story to tell. I'm just going to write it and publish it instead of spending years honing that craft and writing a book. Now I'm not saying that you can't write a good book on your first, time out because it is possible but the majority of us have books in a bookshelf that we've written 20 years ago 25 years ago 10 years ago last year and they absolutely suck and no one's ever going to read them and right.
3: so i think the best way i don't have my bookshelf i, I got rid of those
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, i've got mine in a briefcase somewhere i've got millions of words in a briefcase that that will never see the light of day. And that's all part of the process.
3: Now we have right. a plan to steal that briefcase. Who, yeah. Right. Who wrote <laughs> the rules? That's a
2: great, like that's, well, then that's 100%. Right. Who wrote the rules and why do we care what they have to say?
1: Right. Well, and that's the thing. Like, if, if writing without contractions is your style, then that's not a rule that you need to pay attention to.
2: Right? Very Saga has a million words, and half of them are contractions. Right. right? And then I wrote then I, then I wrote Dragon Blood Assassin with Andy and there's you know I, there's not a contraction in there. As a matter of fact, every time I write a contraction, Andy uncontracts it. Uh if that's even the right word to use. Right. Well, uh, and then like that's some the style of- in which we've written it, it's very formal, it's very epic, it's very verbose. Right.
0: So so is the most important thing to be consistent yeah. with the world you've created. Absolutely. percent If you begin the book and say, one of my rules is I'm going to not use contractions, then be consistent with that rule that you've set, you've set out from the For beginning. Sure.
2: I had I always, a – No, you go. I've talked a lot. I've
3: always felt like you're reading a fantasy book and – Theoretically, the people in that book are speaking another language, probably a language from another world or past time. So you're translating what they said into modern English. We use contractions in modern English. I just don't see the point in not using them.
2: No, it's really just the flow. It's the flow that the writer is wanting to get out of it. It does feel a little more epic fantasy when it's done in a high setting, it has this, you know, like this feel that you want the flow. I always say that like dialogue is music, but the reality is books are music. All yeah. Music. So that whatever that musical tone you want to set for the book, I get why he wanted those contractions out. It's fine, but that's not how I did it in the Buried Goddess Saga. Um, you know, I, I got this is jumping ship, but not quite. I got kicked out of, or I got I got a post banned. And then I left the group yesterday. And the question was, um, we all know that men, that a lot of men write terrible women. What is the worst female character you've ever seen written? And I felt like this was a, I I felt like this was a rule moment. And it was prevalent on my mind when we were getting ready for this show. Uh, So I responded, what is this women, quote unquote, that we are speaking about? Are all women the same? Hmm. And perhaps that poorly written woman was perfectly written for that particular woman. Right. And I got trashed by a bunch of women and then the, the the post got banned. But the question for me remains. Only this
3: group was so I can never go there. Um,
2: (laughs) I won't, I won't blast them necessarily, but the reality is like, they just didn't want, they didn't want an argument, but And I'm not a very 2023 guy, but like, this is 2023. And if we're going to focus on genders and poorly written genders, then let's start to acknowledge that not every person in a particular gender is the same. Some women do like looking at boobs or, you know, whatever, right? Like, what are we missing here? This is, this is a rule that needs to be thrown out and readers are the gatekeepers I feel time. like
3: some men write horrible women, but I also feel like it's not given enough attention that a lot of women write really badly written men.
2: Sure, look at Twilight. Are there right. any men that in touch with every emotion that they have? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I mean, yeah, well, I
3: mean, I, I read a lot of. Uh, I read. I used to read a lot of science, of mainstream science fiction from the eighties sure. and late seventies, and. In that era i mean female science fiction writers started coming forward you know being more important and more significant in the field and so i read a lot of them and they're great writers but almost all of them just write horrible male characters they have no idea what motivates men the the internal thoughts the uh Internal monologue of the men. It's like I don't know anybody like that. Nobody I right. know man thinks like that.
2: In well, my experience been. as a man, we don't have a very um, deep internal dialogue.
1: It's not a very verbose. Like um, my wife and I will have discussions, and or it's like that. That uh, that I can't remember who did the joke. I think it was Jim Gaffigan, and he was talking about going and no, it was Brian Regan. He was talking about going golfing with his friend, and his friend had just got divorced. Mm-hmm. And he came back and he was talking with his wife and his wife is asking, well, is he seeing anybody? And he's like, no, I I, I have no idea. And he's like, you, you just spent the whole day with him. You didn't ask if he was seeing anybody. And he's like, no, I, I didn't. But I do know what kind of driver he's using. Cause he got a new one. Right. <laughs> because because there, there are a lot of, I mean, some men would get into that conversation it really it really men right it it just it really depends and again this kind of goes to a rule and this rule is focused on characters if your character man or woman or whatever is in touch with that feeling or, or doing something then that's fine to write them like that if they're not then it's fine to write them Otherwise, but not all men have a running verbose monologue in their brain as they're going through their day. And like, I'll be sitting at the table with my cup of coffee looking out the window and my wife's like, what are you thinking about? And I go, nothing literally nothing literally nothing and literally. she's like how how can you sit there and not like because my wife is like raw, raw, raw,
3: raw, all the time you learn as you get older you make up something make up oh yeah something. yeah <laughs> isn't it
1: weird that the cloud is floating weird like that like that's strange but no, no, like so, it's so, the thing like so some
3: people like uh, oh i'm just thinking about you know the future no, what our plans are for ten years, <laughs> for my, something, right?
1: Something. Well, and that, but that's the thing. I think a lot of people get hemmed up on rules like your character has to be this, or they have to talk a certain way, and and that there are no rule because no one person is the same. Like Jamie and I, or Steve and I could be really close in some aspects, but in other aspects, we're not at all. So as you're going through and you're you're looking at rules for character or male female rules or whatever. Some women are the same mentally speaking as men. They don't have long, like deep thoughts all the time, or they're not focused on whatever it is. You know, maybe they're more mechanical or or engineering inclined than another woman or whatever. And that just goes to their character. It doesn't have anything to do with whether they're bad or good. Like, I, I don't know of any guy that would look at a hot chick and go, I wonder if she studies algebra. Like I, I don't know that the guy not. would do that, but there are guys that may think like that. So like it it just really depends on the character.
2: Are we allowed well, to say well, that? judging yeah, oh, sorry. people
0: as monoliths is, is 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 bad form anyway. For sure. Uh, like like Steve said, all women don't think like this. Like you said, Josh, all men don't think like this. So the the codifying rules around That is just silly to begin with.
2: And I I think what they were getting at was those authors that write, you know, the woman looked in the mirror and her breasts bounced, right? Like, I know what they were, I know what they were trying to get at there. (laughs) Right, right. It just, to me, felt like an unnecessary derisiveness. I think that's the word. Um, Derisive. Derisiveness, just trying to create drama out of of nowhere. And so I, I wanted to play a little bit and they weren't happy with me playing a little bit. So... Uh, I, it's not the group for me.
1: Yeah, I think I think when it comes to writing rules, you really should take those rules with a grain of salt. And um, I I personally try not to use adverbs because I think there's a better way to get across what you're trying to say um, than using adverbs. I think s- using adverbs in dialogue tags is extremely weak. Um, but listen, if if you're writing a first draft or you're writing your first book and you don't have the skill set to set the context of what's going on without using adverbs, use the adverbs. But then when yeah. you're going back and you're, you're going back and doing a second pass or a third draft or whatever it is, take that time to really look at that adverb. Is it necessary? Can you set the context of what's going on without using that adverb? If well, you can't,
3: also, I would, leave I would, the yeah. adverb. I would say that there's also situations where it's not important enough to spend a lot of words to – I mean, there's somewhere it is, if it's like a key moment in the book. But if it's just like some line that conveys information that the audience needs to have, and you you want to use an adverb instead of uh, using like three sentences to describe how the person's feeling – I, I can see him maybe using it
1: well, got- an easy way to get around that is, like, say, let's just say somebody says something nervously. like that that's your dialogue tag. He said nervously. instead of going, he said nervously, have the dialogue and then say he shot a nervous look to whatever. right? And that. Yeah. That sets up the nervous, but it also gives action to what you're doing. And it shows the character actually doing something. Like if he shoot, shoots a furtive glance to a guard, if he's talking with another prisoner, that will set context for he's saying it nervously um, instead of just using the advert, right? Mm-hmm.
3: Right, but it's, just just while
0: well, or something,
1: yeah. using the adverb
0: actually
2: follows is. One rule. Which is Saying how, something
3: while biting your nails seems problematic. Tell <laughs> the story in as
2: few words as possible. Right, that's one of the rules. I, I've got yeah. the grammar rule up right now. Yeah, and I've got uh, some other more um, metaphysical rules, uh, so to speak, up on the side here. And I, I have this one rule that if you're going to tell me what the character watched. Or what the character looked at. Just don't tell me that because I already know that you're in the character's head. I don't need to know that he watched something happen. Cause if you tell me that thing happened, I know that he watched it happen. Right. But so we've got like the grammar rules. These make some sense, right? Watch out for homonyms. Of course. True. Two words that are spelled the same or mm-hmm. mean the same thing or, you know, whatever a homonym. I don't have the definition, but we all know what they are. Right. Yeah. Um, be specific. That's pretty broad. What if I don't want to be specific at the time? What if I want right. to create some mystery? He said
0: unspecifically.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Avoid I, long I sentences. But what if you need a long sentence?
1: Right. Or the I one that, that uh, the one that you had in the in the little uh, deal here where it says don't use sentence fragments. I yes. use sentence fragments all the time because, right. it, like like Steve said, that the narrative can be kind of poetry or song or whatever. But you also want to look at white space on your page and if you've got huge paragraphs that's going to distract from your story potentially and so if you have short blocks or or action that's happening like he jumped that's kind of a sentence it's not a it's a full sentence but it's a short sentence and you can use shorter sentences or fragments to convey what you're doing and it kind of speeds up the action I love
0: it. Josh, Sims, because the 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 visual <laughs> flow the fourth time I tried to
3: talk and people talk over. <laughs> mute Mike, mute it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the visual flow of a page is is just as important sometimes as the flow of dialogue. The the you know when, when you see a page, like you said, if it's just chunk. Uh, you know, people's eyes will gloss over. They, they like yep. to see the tension on the page. And, right. and it's, it's a subconscious thing. I think Ricardo, I'm sorry. I was Greg, going to say did. that
3: sentence fragments are also useful. If you are trying to get closer to the mind of the character and what they're thinking in the moment, like, you know, people, when they talk and when they think they use sentence fragments and if yep. you're trying to get closer to their, to their thoughts in that particular Scene, you might want to use those to give an indication of their, what they're, what they're, what's going through their head. Well, it's punctu- in dialogue.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it punctuates things sometimes, too, right? Like,
3: he Not turned. as much dialogue, I was thinking, Hank, is inner monologue, but in, go ahead. In speak, there, so. in,
2: and even in narrative, right? Because yeah. you could go, he turned, period, just in time to see the fist hit him. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, he turned just in time to see the fist hit him. That's one sentence. Right. But if you yeah. really want to punctuate his turning and then let them really make them know what happened, right? Um, don't use words you don't know the meaning of.
1: I think we can <laughs> all agree. Uh, can I Can I just say really quickly, I want to tag on what Rick, can, said because <laughs>
3: Rick, <inconceivable>. Rick said.
1: Rick <laughs> said using sentence fragments as a way to get inside the character's head or show something. I, I'm reading The Last Orphan X book right now. And... In this particular book is the first time that he ever gets captured by a government agency and that really affected him. And so throughout the book, he has fragments from this big chase scene that's happening. And one of the things is, you know, the the, the character Evan is a fantastic shot. He usually, he almost always hits what he's shooting at, because he's so good. Um, but in this particular instance, he missed, and uh, Greg Horowitz uses sentence fragments from that sequence to show that Evan, it, it, in a in a per- particular instance, is having flashes of thought or memory about what's happening. But it's only the fragment, like m- missing, like you'll have a a a, a paragraph of narrative and then a blip of text that's any missed by uh two meters or whatever. And then goes on because that not only are you showing the action and the scene, but you're showing the mental process of what's happening in his mind as he's going through things. And you're showing that it actually affected him deeply as a character, instead of just saying this really deeply affected him, you can get again through context, And the dramatic nature of how you're using those fragments and how you're using those incidents um, to show that this thing really affected him. And I thought that was a really good way to present that, narratively speaking.
3: I think the bottom line for a lot of a lot of these rules is that um, I, I hear editors especially talk about them all the time, you know, and how important they are. But I also feel like as a reader, before I became a writer, I never noticed any of these rules being broken
1: for sure, right
3: and i and I don't think most readers do notice them. I think we writers and editors obsess over them, but readers just want a well told story with compelling characters, and as long as nothing sticks out like you're using an ad adverb every paragraph, you know they're not gonna notice it they're not this it's just gonna like flow right by them. Non-standard dialogue tags. People get into long, heated debates about non-standard dialogue tags. Readers don't notice them unless you overuse them. They don't For notice sure. any of that stuff unless you overuse it. So if the readers aren't – all a lot of these rules, the readers, as long as you don't – and I think being cognizant of them is good because you don't want to overuse them. But as long as they're not overused, the readers concentrate on the story and the characters, and they just don't care.
1: Well, speaking of timing and dialogue tags, the standing rule with dialogue tags is generally just use said, right? Don't use any other description. Just use said because people gloss over that as they're reading um, just right. internally. They don't really read he said. But – and now we're talking about audio books now yeah, where they're, they're coming huge, uh, like just growing bigger than they ever have been today – there have been several books where the author is using "he said, she said" all the time, and as as you're listening, you can't just gloss over that. You hear it.
3: Jim right? Butcher's so, early Jim Butcher's really Harry, Harry Dresden novels. I listened to them on audio, yeah. and there was just sections in the, especially the first book, where it was like he said, he said, said every line. Right, I'm like right. So yeah, I and would I, argue, that. <laughs> I would
2: argue with Jim the same argument I always make is that James Marsters got tremendously better after book 3 on narration.
3: 1 million percent. Million well, percent. yeah, I mean, I agree, but it's still it no matter who is narrating, I can hear the said over and over again. And, and the reason yeah. I'm the reason yeah. I'm bringing
2: this up is because Jim didn't stop doing that, but what James Marsters learned how to do was go, uh, Hank, you're sitting on a chair, he said. And like, there's this dip, total difference total yeah. dip in the way that he says that he said, she says that. And it's something I noticed, uh, Rick. That's why I'm bringing it up as sort of an argument point. The narrator has so much power over Will Wheaton is a good example. John Scalzi writes, he said, she said every single line. And it is overwhelming. And Will Smith says them full or Will Smith <laughs> <laughs> Man. Uh, um, oh will wheaton sends them full volume every time and so you get that blast like you did in those early jim butcher books um and i'm an audio guy so like i pay attention to all of that Steve,
3: you keep oh, his name God. out of your mouth yeah <laughs> i loved it <that> he went <laughs> That was hilarious.
0: With the Jim Butcher books, that's a, a great example of a narrator transitioning to a voice actor in that in that
1: right. Concept. But again, you have to be careful because if you, yes, it really like if you're writing for audio, which uh, Steve and I do that a lot when we look at our books and we make sure that they're good for audio, like good presentation. Right. It, it honestly, it really depends on the narrator too. Sometimes because you can get a narrator that does voices well, and if he does that. Like, say you're writing a series, okay, and he gets the first book, and he just nails the character voices. If you can, if I can get away with it, I'm eliminating all my dialogue tags from the books after that, because if he can do the voices that well, the reader doesn't need them.
2: Here's the so problem. I, We're the authors, and we assume that the readers remember what the voices are, and I don't think they always do.
1: Well, I'm not saying I, I remove them completely, but I try to minimize them because I know in my mind that the narrator is you, is going to do a good job if it's a good narrator. Yeah breaking up those
2: voices there's but this some, trend though with audiobook people writing for audiobooks where they remove all the dialogue tags because for they sure feel like the narrator can nail it
1: and sometimes I, they can't
2: yeah man i listen to even great narrators uh jeff hayes is one of them right and there's sometimes mm. where the authors clearly took out all the dialogue tags and i go this is really cool that he's doing this great voice but i forgot which character this was
3: for sure yeah yeah <laughs> um I, I prefer, honestly, I prefer uh, like an action. Yeah, so do I. Instead of a dialogue tag, it just yeah. I, I get bored of writing. He said, she said. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And that's
1: it. Goes back to one of those things where they're talking about like writing. I I can't remember who was writing it. It was a it was a script writing book, and he was talking about if you're having characters. Have a discussion. Have them doing something else during the discussion. Don't just have them stand in a room and talk. Have them eating a banana or do it like I don't know, making a a pinewood derby car. Something that gives you the writer the ability to present. Who's talking in a way that's not doing dialogue tags, like like Rick said, doing action. He he picked up a box and put it over here. And you can use that as the tag to ground the reader in the conversation to point out who is talking.
2: And then another great point is, is it written in first person or is it written in third person? 100%. Because in first person, James Crowley, the Raptors books, all the ones I've written, I will opt for I said – or she said before a dialogue tag, because the dialogue tags look very unnatural when you're the first person character. And I know drop trooper was written first person as well. And I don't remember how you did stuff like that, Rick. Um, But you know, when cam, when cam says something,
3: I don't remember either. I
2: (laughs) I feel like I'd have noticed if, if it was really just a lot of dialogue tags, because sometimes he struck up a cigarette. Hey there guys, period. He moved his hands. I'm just doing it. Sometimes it gets overwhelming. To For a sure. Like yeah. I don't need to know every action and stage direction that this character takes. Right. Well, and
1: that goes to that goes to experience over rules, yeah. right? Like you can get to a point in your writing where you're, you know, what is too much and what is not enough, and then you can kind of balance that out. But again, it takes, it takes writing and it takes a lot of reading to understand where those rules can really be broken because we can talk all day about how I break a rule or how I ignore a rule, but a lot of that won't translate fundamentally to a writer's skill box unless they do it, unless they kind of work out what their thing is. And if their thing is adverbs and they're really good at it and the reader likes it, um, who am I to say that that's wrong? Like Steve said, money talks, right? So we've mentioned Fifty Shades of Grey before. I don't want to knock on it uh, too much, but that book, for whatever reason, resonated with a crap ton of people and made a billion do dollars. And you know, the same thing with with a lot of books that I look at, and I'm like, man, I, I really don't understand this. But again, that goes back to me as a writer looking at the. The work, not the story. I'm looking at the the way it's written because, you know, as writers, that's what we do. But like Rick said, readers don't normally give a crap about all that. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, speaking about just rules in general, they're they're good for writers to know and understand why things are a certain way, but also. They're not set in stone. I don't know that there's any rules that say you have to do this to tell a good story because you can write... Anything like if you're writing an unreliable character, an unreliable narrator, there's a lot of things you can do, especially if that narrator's first person. None of the rules apply, then you can do whatever you want. If you like, uh, David Baladacci's The Memory Man, like the way that that dude's mind works, he wrote the book the way the dude's mind works, right? There's there's still a rule that he created for that
2: character
1: 100%. Yeah, 100%.
2: Cormac
1: McCarthy. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah but, um, there's you know there's a uh, there's no rules when you're writing something bonkers mm-hmm. like a like a Chuck Palahniuk book for oh, 100% yeah. right um, I don't know I uh, I tend to look at the rules as uh we've all had a lot of editors I would assume I know I mean I supply Rick's editors. you've gone through at least four that I know of I think. And I've had several, only four, <laughs> ed- I, think, I think, but I, I have some editors that I, that they edit my books and I go, this isn't what I wanted to do. Right. And then I have other ones that go, oh, that makes it a lot better. And it, it so it also comes down to who your editor is and what rules yeah. they follow. But and if we're does your about editor stuff, have
0: the same vision for your book that you do? Yeah right 100 percent. steve you said something a minute ago you said never use words that you don't know the 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 proper definition for well i have a character that that i write that one of my favorite characters and he says stuff that he doesn't understand all the time and but that that becomes a character trait and people dismiss him because he just talks ignorantly all the time and then every now and then he says something truly profound and people just miss it and and you know could have saved themselves so much heartache if they would have just listened to what he had to say but everybody dismisses him because he just says crazy stuff all the time that he doesn't understand what it means but but that becomes a character trait and that's not me as the writer saying stuff that I don't understand but the character doesn't understand, and so e- even I, I guess what I'm saying is e- even hard and fast rules that everyone should abide by. Um, when it becomes a character trait, yep. you, know, you can kind of take the gloves off.
3: Like you may be running less than twelve parsecs, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> one of my one of my favorite lines in
2: Cold as Hell is when this guy Deputy Dale says, "We're not going to come here and defecate the dead." <laughs> And James James Crowley in her her dialogue goes, he means desecrate, but I'm going to let it go because, you know, the situation, whatever. We don't
3: want to do either one.
2: Uh, We don't want to do either. Um, Brandon Sanderson.
3: Deprecating the
0: dead will ruin your day.
2: uh, (laughs) Brandon Sanderson recently got slammed in that ridiculous article that we shouldn't even give any uh, attention to. But one of the things that was brought up was uh, something that I noticed in his superhero series, and that is the main character, admittedly throughout the whole series, is really bad at metaphors.
3: Like Mr. Furious?
2: Is that a thing? What? What is For that? Mister-
3: Mystery Men from Mystery Men. Oh, ben is, that, is character. that one of his yeah, things? He you get mixing metaphors. Like, so this one was like, you know. You don't, don't need to be a weatherman to know which way the wind shines. <laughs> This was a little more like, this, yeah, that's funny.
2: This was a little more like, um, like it was, it was like a potato on a plate in the mic. I'm not really good at my metaphors, like that. He would do that constantly. And this writer was like, Brandon Sanderson's so bad at metaphors that he has a character who admits he's bad at metaphors. And like, to me, that was, that was missing the whole point of creating a character with a tick.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Clearly, Brandon's fine in metaphors. He's written ten million words, right? Right. Previously,
3: although it's fun. It well, a lot of his me- in first person, first person book. If you don't know, like the word some for some technical term, like what's the plural of octopus? It, you don't even have to look it up. Just like what is it? Octopi? Octopuses? I right. don't know. You just right. have to think that. Right.
1: <laughs> Well, and and speaking about like metaphors and stuff like that, like some your metaphors have to make sense in the world. So, like a lot of Brandon's man, metaphors don't have any basis in our world because they're in a fantasy setting. So, a lot of the, his metaphors are twisted and different because of where they're used at. I mean, that's not necessarily a rule. It's just a no. Uh, but I
2: pinged ours. I pinged my James Crowley fan group to ask for like Western-y sounding metaphors one time and i'm like and if yours is good i'll use it and one of them was like it, he was he was i don't know closed up as tight as a preacher's flask um another one was you know tight as a nun's thighs you know whatever it was <laughs> right and like they just worked so well I put them in the book yeah
3: like a tick on a coonhound. it's hard to
2: come up <laughs> with good western <laughs> phrases i have a, a notebook of them you know but I, and I steal them from everywhere. I don't mind saying that. I, just, I live in right. Texas. People say crazy stuff here. <laughs> crazy stuff. And you go, what does that even mean? I don't know, but it sounds great.
0: You're right. Here, here's one that I that I ran across, and and we all have have heard this. Uh, we probably have given um, this advice uh, every editor. Um, software uh, I've ever seen will flag for this. Uh, Dabble we use Pro Writing Aid, uh, you know, as a as a plugin for our software, and it will flag passive voice. One hundred percent. Everybody looks for it. Everybody says, "Is there ever a place for passive voice?" And, and yes, other than other than um, you know, in dialogue where that's place, a character place trait.
3: A, basic, a place exists for passive voice. <laughs> okay. Do, do
2: you, <laughs> I, I find, find do. that if it – so every time I have passive sentences, as I'm going through my edits, if I see he was running, and I can change it to he ran. Yeah.
3: He ran so and far, far
2: away. It, and I do it. Um, if I change it and I feel like it doesn't still convey the same emotion – then I don't change it. It is personal. Um, it's not an everyday. It's not an every, you can't just blanket your whole book with that rule.
1: I, I agree. And I think there are some settings where, uh, it's better to use passive than not. Like if you're, if you're trying to save words and you can say the room was orange or something like that, like technically that's passive, but it's also descriptive. So it doesn't really, You know, it doesn't really have the same weight as he was running. This room
3: was orange passive. No, that's not passive.
2: That's just a A good example would be uh, a guy walks into a bar and he said he sees a guy at the end of the bar and he says uh, he was staring at his glass. Okay, yeah, that yeah. He was staring at his glass. It is because he stared at his glass would be the non-passive version. I
3: I thought that it would be more like an example. I like a decision was made.
2: No, that's another way. That's another way of doing it. But if the word was is in there, it becomes passive. Right. Um, and I guess by that merit, the, the, the room was orange. Uh, yeah, I guess. Same thing.
1: Because, I mean, you could write it. You could say he walked into the orange room. Yeah, for sure. Right. And um, and so there are some things that may or may not be passive. But as writers, you look and you're like you're ingrained to take was, had, it, were
3: like butthole, all these. Some butthole had painted that room orange. That's active, right? <laughs> That's yeah. another
2: way of doing it. But like, like, think about the difference between he was staring at his glass and he stared at his glass. There's a there's a weight that comes along with – Right. Him. He was staring at his glass. Yeah. I agree. And, and But it's personal, right? Like, you might go, no, there's no weight to that. Take it out. Well,
1: I, and Hank mentioned pro-writing aid. I I forget – about Pro Writing Aid a lot while I'm writing. I never use it while I'm writing, uh, but I, like I just submitted a short story to Bain and I used Pro Writing Aid before I did it, and I'm glad that I did because it found a lot of things. And sometimes you're writing and you think you're writing active, but it flags as passive, and then you look at it and you go, "Oh yeah, that is a better way to write that." Um, and I would I would encourage anyone writing to use. Something, but Pro Writing Aid is really good because it dabble. So that's a great yeah, and one hundred percent. Like I write in dabble. I use Pro Writing a lot of the times. I'll export to Word, and then Word has the app pro writing aid that you can just open the app and it's a, a little bit make sure you hit save before you close it out that's just a little tidbit from my experience because i went through for like two hours fixing something in the app and then didn't hit save and nothing changed in the word document and i'm like oh fantastic for me i get to do it again absolutely cool um but yeah i mean there are a lot of times while i'll during a first draft I'll use passive as just as I'm writing but then go back and I I do try to change it to active because it does like some like you're saying Steve there are things that have weight as passive verbs but there's a lot of times where you like in your mind as you're writing it yeah that sounds fine but then you go back and read it later and I'm like no there was a better way to write that and so with passive it's it is kind of a crapshoot but Predominantly, like ninety-eight percent of the time, passive verbs can be removed with a little bit of time or pro writing aid or something that you you can take those out and change them. It, it does make the work stronger.
2: But see, Hank, your 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 subtitle on this was writing rules and knowing when to break them. So I think that there's a genuine question here of we're saying yes, that rule could be broken, but how do we know? Right. I, I I think again that comes to experience, right? Like I don't know if that's a, that's not a, that's not that tangible enough answer. I don't think.
1: Well, you know, I, I you're right. I, I think that you could, I think that you could look at, you know, one of your first books and go, I didn't understand the rule correctly, um, and so I didn't apply it correctly. Well, how would you within, learn it?
2: Right. Like be like saying, how do I take a, a great jump shot? It just comes with experience. Yeah, but like at some point, you got to learn. How to take a jump shot, and for sure, I
3: learned by, I learned by reading.
2: I, yeah. I agree with that, but by reading who Stephen King, no, I mean, not, not
3: reading not reading craft books, but by reading uh, yeah, that's what reading I mean. A wide, yeah. wide variety of books in the genre that I that I like to read, that I like to write. Uh, I, and I mean, sure, some of them, some of them are, you know, worse about you breaking those rules than others. But uh, I feel like. A lot of them, you know, a lot of them concentrate on those rules. So if you read a wide variety of authors, you'll see that the majority on one side instead of the other. Yeah, I agree. So so here's the question. You're dying, by the way.
0: Here's the question (laughs) take your writer hat off and put your reader hat on. Have you ever read a book where the passive voice threw you out of the story?
3: I know that That I I have.
2: I know that I have personally because I you know I'm tr- I'm mostly uh, you know I run athon but I mostly listen to traditionally published books and oftentimes when I choose an indie book at sort of almost at random I'm not saying an athon book but just like hey this one's gotten really popular let me see why mm-hmm. and a lot of indie authors write passively um they don't have the editors, you know, cause they're not spending 10 grand on an editor. I'm not saying all editors are worth 10 grand, but like when you, when you're reading it and, and everything as he was doing, he was seeing, he was going, he watched this, he did this, he, all of that stuff becomes overwhelming sometimes.
1: For sure. Uh, and again, I think that comes back to time investment and experience as a writer. And I think that like, I, I very, I, I read indie um but not a lot um because like steve said the the quality sometimes is not where i want it to be for my reading time they are good to read as examples of sometimes what not to do right and and then if you read a bad book like he's saying and everything was passive and you're like this is pulling me out that's a really good indication as a writer to go this is not what i want to do um But if you're looking at it as a reader, from a reader standpoint, I don't care about punctuation. I don't care about anything like that. As long as it is a good book that's engaging, I'll read it all day long. And it, but I think for authors, it's really hard to take that hat off. It's it's super hard to take that hat off. Whether you're reading a book,
3: I think it colors how we read books after. Become and it's hard. It's hard to go back to the way you used to.
1: Yeah. Well, and a lot of things that you read and you're like, I really like that. It doesn't translate equally one-to-one to re- your writing, yep. right? Because sometimes the the actual writing of a thing is harder to do than you think it is. So you read, I don't know, say a really good book, uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Let's just throw that out there. The writing is fantastic. Say what you want about the author or the story or whatever. The writing is really, really good. But Knowing that that writing is really good does not always translate to I can sit down and write Game of Thrones, because though that that skill set needs to be be developed, and you have to understand fundamentally what he's doing as a writer in the the narrative, to because you can write like anybody you can. You know, Stephen King has a really specific way of writing. Like if you read his books, they all read basically the same as you're looking at the narrative, like just the style in which he writes. And that is, it's hard to duplicate and do it well. You can (laughs) write as the same way he writes, but maybe the story won't be there. You'll have the style, but not the story. Or you can do the story and not the style. It's really difficult to say, pull this and do that and you'll be, you'll have a
2: good book. I want to qualify something. Um, you know, I said that I listen to a lot of trad and don't listen to a lot of indie. Uh, I I want to be careful because I know there's a lot of indie writers and I'm friends with a lot of indie writers and I'm an indie writer. So like, I don't want to make it seem like I think indie writing is bad. I just want to remind everybody that when we're talking about the difference between trad pub and indie pub, there's, you know, something like 600,000 new indie books a year versus, you know, 150 trad pub in maybe the genre. And so sometimes it's a lot easier to just go this one I know is going to be good. I'm going to read it. When I say good, I mean, well-written. Yeah. um, Versus let me take a shot on this with the time that I have for sure. Um, And so I don't know the, the rules I think are meant to be broken. But we have to determine, uh, I I asked, how do we do it, right? Like, I think listening to our editors is very important. 100%. There's been a stigma in indie writing for about 10 years that, like, we don't need editors. And I think Hank brought that up earlier. But the reality is, especially if you're with a publisher, small publisher, and this isn't, I'm not talking to Rick or anybody right now. But, like, when an editor says something, it is oftentimes in our egotistical handbasket to go, no, I don't need to do that for sure. However, if, if it keeps coming up in a book, I usually take it to somebody else. It's usually Rhett or it's usually, you know, Josh or whatever. And I go, can you read these two things and just tell me which works better? Mm -hmm. And if the person agrees with the editor and I don't tell them which one's mine, if the person agrees with the editor, I go, okay, I guess it's two to one. I'll just move on. I'm not going to die on this hill. Yep. Yeah. And then Rick would probably go, I I don't even think about it. I'm just going to let the editor... I just said accept all... Accept all. (laughs) It's not going to so drastically change your book that it matters. And sometimes it's easier to just go, if the editor caught this, it's worth taking. For sure.
0: That that also is an argument for what we said earlier about finding an editor that that has the same vision as you um, so that you can trust um, that feedback that you're getting from them. Because sometimes you'll just get wildly, uh, you know, off the wall feedback that is going to alter your story. But if you've done your your due diligence ahead of time and know that this editor cares about your story, has the same vision as you, then they're probably not going to take the the you know freight train down a dirt road.
1: I mean, that's a great point. and in the the one thing I'll say about that is in in weaponized, in the beginning of weaponized, i, I I'm a huge proponent of gaining information through context. I hate info dumps, so I try not to do them at all, and I leave almost everything to context. And in the beginning of the story, there's a lot of things going on that I don't explain. I just leave it to context for the reader to figure out. I I think readers are smarter than a lot of authors give credit to, and they can figure out what's happening just through the story. But this particular editor that I had look at it was really hung up on the fact that he didn't understand this or he didn't understand that. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. None of that matters because you, you will gain that knowledge through the context of the story. Um, And so it, it, like you said about the editor, you have to make sure that the editor is seeing what you're trying to say. And if they're not, um, then, uh, you, you know, maybe choose a different editor or go do what Steve said and go with, like give your, your author friends of you at it. It looks like Hank lost his internet, um, and I'm not sure what that means for the broadcast because I cannot stop the live broadcast. No, <laughs> so just, I don't think stop. anybody can. Um, I've, got a, I've got a hard break. We'll have to
3: stay this. on here forever.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <we can laughs> leave.
3: I'll, I'll stay. Rick. Rick
2: had an, an editor that we provided to him that kept changing his dialogue.
3: Oh yeah, I hate that. Right. And, and sometimes correcting correcting the grammar in dialogue. Right. (laughs) Um,
2: Sometimes, you know, as a publisher, we don't know precisely what our editors are doing other than they've, they've passed the tests. They've done some great samples for us. And the only way we ever know if authors don't like them is if authors tell us, I don't like it for sure. And, And so Rick came to us once, and I think it was maybe three books in a row it's like, I'm, I just, I'm at a point where I, I don't want to do this anymore, and he's making more work for me, and I think that's when we switched. But that's that tells the story, right? If you're working with an editor and you don't like something they're doing, and maybe you tell them, stop doing this, and they still refuse to stop doing it, it's time to get a new editor. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think, uh, again, like you're saying, the editor, uh, typically speaking, the editor understands the rules of – writing, like the language of writing correctly. And so they'll be able to find a lot of that stuff, but it just goes to,
3: um, I think he, looking back on, it, I think maybe they just used a, a program like Grammarly and didn't look at what the, what it was changing. That is
2: possibly true. hundred percent. And that's the danger of getting a, a sample edit from an editor that does really well. Cause they're going to edit, I don't know, 4,000 words. And then I have no idea if they're just running it through Grammarly for the rest of the stuff unless an an author comes to me and goes, Hey, this, this doesn't seem right. So, uh, yeah, I don't know where, where Hank went.
1: Um, he's calling Comcast. So I don't know that, um, I don't know that he can end it, but I'm, I'm messaging. If you have
3: to to go, Josh, it's okay. We can, we can keep jabbering at each other. The guy's not here yet.
1: So I I got a guy coming to look to fix (laughs) my IC, but he's not here yet. I'm going to see
2: if he can give me his information so I can log in and log out.
3: Before you really need it,
2: um, I Rick asked me in a private message what happened to my finger. Nothing. I, I, you know how some people bite their nails. I tend to bite the skin around my nails. Whatever. And I made myself bleed pretty bad. So
1: if uh, if you're watching this and you have one wondering why we're just kind of <laughs> rambling now, uh, it, it's because Hank, our wonderful host and controller of the Internet right now, has lost his Internet. Um, so. I don't know that there's going to be anything of value to watch from from this point on. Uh, but thank you for coming and hanging out with us today. Uh, I, I'm not sure when Hank's going to be able to jump on and kill this, or maybe he can send me the info. To Interestingly, it like that. though, you, yeah. like we
2: can't do that, or like that. Yeah. it's interesting to me that he got booted, and we didn't just lose the show. Yeah, well, because
1: it's hosted on Streamyard, and so Hank hey, just lost his. Yeah, you,
3: try. So, yeah, I assume you have his his number to text him. Suggest I'm messaging him, him right now. Uh, suggest to him that he use the uh, Wi Fi hotspot on his phone to hook back up long enough to cut it off. Do we feel like we accomplished anything today? I never feel like I accomplished anything. Nice. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I think that people people know the rules in general. I think a lot of writers spend a lot of time reading books about the rules and and how to write well and craft. And I think knowing that it's not the end of the world, if you break them, if you do it on, as long as you know them and do it on purpose is important because honestly, books that follow all those rules that they're all the same, you know, they're a little predictable in the structure. And I like when people do something different. I mean, some of my favorite science fiction books are from people who have interesting and non-standard ways of writing.
2: Yep. What's your favorite book, Rick?
3: Ever? I don't know your favorite
2: sci-fi book.
3: Um. Or at God, least that's a hard one. one. Just, just uh, one of them. One of them. Uh, Between Planets by Robert Heinlein.
2: That's one Robert Highland I don't know that I've read. He's back!
0: Hey. i back! I have no idea what happened, but my internet just died. Well, s- we killed eight minutes for you. Well, <laughs> I appreciate it. I I'll appreciate say
1: it really it. quickly we've been kind of bashing on Stephen King a lot, but one of my favorite books of all time is The, uh, the Gunslinger. I'll read or that Tower. all the time. Yeah, The Gunslinger, and then Wasteland and all the way up through Wizard and Glass, I absolutely love those books. Um, and he breaks a crap ton of rules in those books. But uh, I, I think it really comes down to, like, as an author, what are you trying to do with your books? He
0: even um, breaks his own rules in those books. Well, For sure.
2: there's a, there's a scripture. I'm gonna close my. I'm gonna close this sermon with this scripture. Uh, there's a scripture that says that teachers are held to a higher standard. Right, and so as pastors, we all go. Well, crap! I better watch everything that I say. And the reason why I felt comfortable sort of calling out Stephen King is the moment you write a book on how to write a book, you are opening yourself up to yeah. being held to a higher standard. For sure. And so, if it was just Joe Schmo, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be ragging on him. But he wrote a book that we consider foundational. Yeah. Right. On how to write. Yeah.
3: Well, that's why yep. when I, when I did a when I did my little. Uh, youtube series on writing i didn't like say how to write a great novel i just said how to write science fiction that doesn't suck i feel like that's uh, a a low bar and i can probably clear it (laughs) as as a
1: as a pitch for anybody that's learning and wanting to learn how to write good story and doesn't really care about the rules of the story google brandon sanderson uh college lecture or BYU lecture he has like two or three seasons of those where he he videotapes and broadcasts his college class for free on YouTube and they are really good foundational pieces for any whether you're written no books or 20 books you can read the watch those and gain knowledge from them
2: does he use actual tapes Josh (laughs) <laughs> I, was thinking I the I same thing I hate you so much. Is that like is that like paper and uh, I, I hate I <laughs> don't exist. Uh, he videotapes himself with,
0: yes. with you H- know yeah. even those those Sanderson lectures he'll tell you this is his take yep. on on becoming a marketable author in this market. Today. For sure. Yep. He's not saying this is how to how to be to, to write purple prose and to be the you know to have the the best of everything he said this is how you become a marketable author in today's market step, and step sure.
2: one take over one of the most famous series of all time <laughs> 100%, step two write whatever the hell you want yeah right <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, guys, I got a bounce.
2: It's a yeah, great show. That's, that's Thanks, our time everybody, for
0: today. Thank you, guys, for joining us. And uh, as usual, we uh, stirred up more questions than answers.
3: <laughs> that's
0: that's
1: our job here, yep. apparently. Yep. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. See Thanks,
0: guys. Hank.
3: Have
2: a great day.
0: That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start
3: your free trial today. Thanks for listening.